welcome back. Welcome back to the Rifles Only Accuracy Podcast. Uh, me and David hadn't been, to get, been able to get together uh, for a while. I don't know if y'all heard about the storm that we had down here in Texas, but we were doing a course during that, and then uh, he had stuff going on, and I had stuff going on. He was able to get to y'all with one little podcast, but we're back together again, and this is the Rifles Only Accuracy Podcast. It's a podcast for all things rimfire and centerfire. Glad that you guys are listening. Uh, we're seeing how many downloads we're getting. We're real happy with that. Um, just thanks for doing that. Put in the comments anything you want us to talk about and everything else. Like I said, we're here at Rifles Only. We're in the classroom again. Call it the, the cave, so we might get a little bit of echo out of this. But at any rate, here we are again. And um, guiding principle of Rifles Only and the Rifles Only Accuracy Podcast. We want to make better shooters, and we want to talk about all sorts of things that can make you better. We already talked about natural point of aim. <clears throat> then we had a good, a good, a good episode talking about safety, and uh, I think uh, you know when uh, with uh, David hitting on the wind, uh, we're going to keep on heading in that direction. And our fundamental that we're going to talk about today is sight picture. Now. I've been doing this a long, long time, and I pretty much know what we're talking about whenever it comes to sight picture. Uh, I know about scopes. I know how they work. I know pretty much everything that I that you can know about this. And that's what I used to say <laughs> back before December. Um, we were very, very fortunate, and we had a, a course going on down here with some Marines, and a subject matter expert came in to talk to these guys, and his name is Michael Bacilieri. And he works for Leupold. I'll let him you know, give you his background and who he works for and what he does. But I tell you what, I had never been more educated about optics and how optics work and all sorts of different things that you can do with them and what you can't do with them, which was another you know, big thing that he put out that. Well, anyway, I, I was just awed and amazed to sit and listen to this guy's lecture. And we are going to have to really put some ropes and some duct tape over this guy's mouth because whenever he starts talking about optics, he can talk and never repeat himself. I'm sure he could talk for two days and telling you stuff that is actually really, really good, useful information about optics. Mike, thanks for being here. I'm going to pass the mic over to you. And uh, man, I just, I'll, I'll have a question for you here in a minute, but um, I know that we talked earlier in the podcast, we're going to, we're going to talk uh, I have to I have to hold you back because you'll you'll keep going and we're going to talk, talk about light transmission I think is the one thing that you think is least understood so I'm going to pass this off to you and you just tear it up brother it's uh, quite the intro I hope I can live up to that um, yeah optics are a bit uh, kind of a different phenomenon and what I mean by that is that um, we go to training schools we go either as a civilian go into a commercial school that we're paying for from somebody like yourself or modern day sniper, wherever you're going to get training. Um, and we talk about the system a lot, the weapons system, but I think that overall, the thing that people understand the least about the system is the optic itself and, uh, what applies, what doesn't. And it's kind of like, um, you know, we've all probably had an old timer tell us, well, once you adjust the scope, you got to smack the objective <laughs> belt, you yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. Hammer on the objective belt. Oh, yeah. Well, there's a reason for that. They just knew I call it the, uh, they just, they just would Joe dirt it. And what I mean by that is like that scene in Joe dirt where they're like, why does the policy track work on the back end of a Buick? It just does. Like they don't know the understand the science behind it or what was going on, but they just knew it worked and so a lot of people don't understand we say it's what's inside of a scope is jfm it's just freaking magic right and um it's kind of like what makes an alternator run well don't let the magic smoke out That's you right. know and so um 
Optics are an interesting phenomenon. Um, talking about sight picture, talking about sight alignment, those are kind of terms that we brought from, you know, the military, the, the iron-sided world, right? And, and how that applies to an optic is very different. And um, I would say that, you know, from, from my experience, probably the most least understood and uh, most talked about thing would be light transmission. And it's interesting because there'll be a lot of companies out there. You can walk into anybody's booth at SHOT Show or wherever you're going and they might have a blanket number for you. We have 98% light transmission. That's a big thing you hear is a blanket number. 98 is really high, but, um, <clears throat> but th that's what's stated is a blanket number. Well, if you look at a lot of scopes, there's a lot of scopes out there that will have anywhere from 10 to 18 lenses in them. And when I say we have 98% light transmission, well, what I'm actually referring to is the light transmission efficiency of a single lens. So you have to understand that by the time you get to the second lens, you have 98% of 98%, and then 98% of 98%, but all the way back to the end user. So usable light is not 98%. Usable light would be somewhere like high 80s, I'm sorry, high, high 70s, low 80s, um, that's actual usable light to the shooter. And so we talk about light transmission a lot in a blanket number, but it doesn't really apply. And then the other aspect of light transmission that people don't really, don't really seem to grasp is that um, we talk about the visible spectrum of light, right? And that's dawn to dusk, what the human can see without augmentation, meaning night vision, before we get onto the IR spectrum of light or anything like that. Well, the the visible spectrum of light is really divided up into three different sections. And you've got what's called twilight transmission, which is about 400 nanometers to uh, like 450-ish. I'm sorry. Yeah, like four, 400 to 450-ish, four, uh, somewhere around there. You've got your twilight, and that's going to be your pre-dawn. And that's going to be where critters move the most, both two- and four-legged, whether you're a hunter of individuals like a military law enforcement Correct. sniper or um, you're a hunter of game, right? right? Critters move in low light. And so you've got, you know, your twilight transmission. And then on the back side of the day, you've got what's called your organic spectrum of light. And that's going to be like 625, 650, 2700 nanometers of light. And you have to understand that during the twilight, the things that the human eye can absorb most is your blues and your violets, right? right? And, that, and then you get to the organic, which is your, your end of day time frame, your pre-dusk. And what really pops is the reds and the oranges. Yeah. Well, it doesn't mean that like in the, in the twilight spectrum of light that yellows don't exist in the world. It right. means that the human eye can't absorb those colors during that spectrum of light very well. Right. And then midday, like dead center midday, you've got right around 550 nanometers of light, which pretty much everything pops, but that's where your greens and your bright yellows and stuff will be visible to you. So if somebody were to tell you, hey, we have 98% light transmission, one of the questions you should ask would be, well, in what spectrum of light? Yeah. Because well over, and if I had to guess, I would say well over 90% of the scope brands out there, I won't say manufacturers, because right. there's only a couple of people that manufacture scopes. Right. Um, but something that's really interesting is that most of the optics brands out there optimize their light and color transmission to be optimized at about 550 nanometers, which is high noon. Right. Well, if we were to walk outside in high noon, we don't need help seeing. 
So why would they optimize their lens coatings for that? And okay. that's due to the fact that it makes the optic pop really bright and clear under department store lighting. Right. Where do we go to buy scopes? Department store. Department <laughs> store, right? With department store lighting. So you might get into a department store and look at two scopes and one of them is 500 bucks and boasts, you know, an unlimited lifetime warranty because that's kind of the common thing now is unlimited lifetime warranty. And then this other scope is 1200 bucks or $1,300. And it also has an unlimited lifetime warranty, but you look at them in the store and the four or $500 model seems brighter, seems mm -hmm. to pop better. And the problem is, is that you'll get it on your gun. You'll get it out in the woods hunting or doing whatever you're doing with it. And you'll never have other scopes online next to it to compare to it. So you'll spend a lifetime never knowing you've been duped, but it's right. got horrible low light transmission or horrible glare management. Right. But you haven't seen that in the store. Right. So, um, there's a lot of little nuances as far as the scope manufacturing process that that really apply to how the relationship is built between the optical system and the scope and the optical system that God gave us in our heads that need to build that relationship and basically work together. Right. And not understanding that makes it really easy for marketing companies to kind of pull the wool, or marketing departments, I should say, within a company to pull the wool over the shooter's eyes. So what you're saying is if I go in and I'm looking at a, a lower brand scope, and it looks really good inside the store. Mm -hmm. And then I pick up a Leupold scope. Sure. And it doesn't look as good. That's because y'all are optimizing them for the low light conditions. For the low light conditions. And okay. so I think that probably every infantryman out there has has had that that point in their life where they're looking at their buddy and they're like, you using night vision yet? Nah, I won't either. But it's that weird kind of that weird transitional right. light where you're like, it's right. too dark for me to see, but it's too bright still for night vision. Mm -hmm. And um we we've worked very very hard to bridge that gap with the lens coatings that we have and in fact the deer and the elk i shot this last year the guide had to look at his watch and he was like no you're still legal but i can't see the animal right and i was like i can see him i can see him fine i'm okay yeah. and i actually took my deer at i think it was 440 yards and the guide was looking through a spotting scope and a pair of binos and couldn't see the animal mm -hmm. and then i shot my elk at 520 yards and it was the same thing but on the beginning of the day and he, right. he literally had to count me down and say okay you're legal in 10 9 and counted me down but he's like i can't see what i'm looking at I, if you know it's a legal animal you go ahead and take it right and i was like no i'm totally i'm good it's the right animal and he was like well then take it i can't see it though well how much do you think they're giving up for that daytime when you really don't need it you're almost giving up you're almost giving up none and you're giving yep. up none that matters none right? that matters you know what yeah, i mean I hear you, you might be giving up I, I don't know what you'd be giving up because I can't tell. I look at I look at say a Mark V midday, and then I look at a scope that's optimized their light and color transmission lens coatings for midday, and I can't really see much of yeah. a difference. But I know that if there was a difference, it wouldn't matter to me. But I, I don't feel like anything's given up. Right. But what I do know is where it matters the most, it's optimized in that in that arena. Right. Um, and where it matters the least, it still is incredible. So. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I grew up on a on a Leopold Mark IV straight sixteen. And yeah. I still have it. You know, a yeah. thirty millimeter tube, a mill dot reticle, just an MOA, and yeah. I still have that scope. I'll never get rid of it. Yeah. And, uh, it's it was sent back to Leopold for a you know check it out and everything else. And the guy who put, actually put a note in there says we don't make them like this anymore. Uh, <laughs> but that was awesome. several years ago. And I think with your new series, y'all are making them like that again. I think so. I think we've done a lot of uh, a lot of testing and. Um, a lot of side impact testing, a lot of um, durability testing. Most people aren't aware of kind of the testing process that we go through. And we go 
I say a little. We go pretty overboard as far as the testing process goes. And, and you funny. give us that in a, the Cliff yeah, Notes version? Yeah. So we, we basically developed a process. We have no idea what's going to happen when the scope leaves the factory. So if you're that dude that like literally spent all of your entire life savings on a brand new 375 shy tack for, you know what I mean? Yeah. King of two mile. Yeah. And you can barely afford a scope. So you buy a $200 model and that's what's going on the gun. Or if you're that dude that just making it rain with hundred dollar bills. So you buy a Mark five for your kids, 1022. We don't know what's going on. What? So we had to develop a baseline process to test everything. And so what we did was we built a rifle because downstairs in, in the factory, we have a hundred yard tunnel where we've got full environmental controls and an Ailer 85 system to really test everything down to the max. And, um, and so uh, we've got this stuff that we can bolt up to the gun, attach it to the gun with the accelerometers and all this stuff and pull the trigger, extrapolate the recoil information, both speed, G-forces pulled, time, all this stuff, and then put that into our system we call the Punisher, which is our testing system, and recreate that and then manipulate the numbers and make it, we've, in this case, we made it far more harsh than the, than, the rifle, than the rifle system we were testing on. But we wanted a rifle that sort of, didn't exist, if you will, because it was right. harsh. And so we built a 375 H&H Ackley Improved. And with the scope, the rings, the base, a full magazine, and the sling, the rifle weighed in at six pounds, one and a half ounces. Sounds like a good hunting rifle. <laughs> it thing is a freaking killer. But anyway, um, the rifle still exists. Um, the guy who came up with the test still has the rifle. It's got 27 rounds through it and it's on its fifth stock. Wow. And these were not, you know, walnut stocks that we just bought off stocky stocks. They were purpose built for us, titanium pillar bedded, um, cross bolted everything. And every time we would shoot it, it would just split the stock down the center of it. So, uh, we got the technology on it, pulled the trigger five times. And the guy who was running the test wanted to shoot a five ground group. He blacked out between each round. Mm -hmm. And after five rounds, we ended up having to take him to the emergency room because he blew out three blood vessels in his left eye and one in his right. He's a, he's a lefty. And because his head was accelerating so fast, your eye being gelatinous couldn't keep up with the acceleration of his head. Mm -hmm. So we took that and that wasn't enough. So we added over a third more recoil on top of that. So mm -hmm. right now we're pushing uh, almost a thousand G's or something like that in a very minimal amount of time. Um, and time is a big factor on recoil. But you see these companies out there, they, they bang the scope you know, on something and then they check it and then they bang it again and they check it. And that's, it's funny. They say, look how tough our scopes are, but that's a process we tell people to do to break the scope in. Mm -hmm. Like that's not a test to see how, how tough it is. Yeah. That's something you should just do is grab your scope and, and move all the controls around and induce recoil or a side impact to it, to jog everything, get rid of the memory in the, in the erector spring system and all that. So anyway, we pulled that information off of um, off that rifle, added the recoil to it that we wanted to, and we test every scope 5,000 times to that. And so right now you're looking at a single impact from that would put uh, around a six foot, 200 pound male into a class two concussed state and three to five kits would kill him. Mm -hmm. So we test that 5,000 times on every scope model we have mm -hmm. and the scope gets pulled off. I'm gonna screw up the number. 17 or something times it's based on you know 100 rounds 120 rounds back to 40 rounds like whatever it is there's a sequence of you know two boxes of shells and then 100 rounds or whatever it is gets pulled off and then we have something uh called the frame grabber it's actually a medical piece of equipment and it can if i remember right it can actually test the shift between a reticle and the image down to a millionth of an moa and mm -hmm. we have it tuned down to a hundred thousandths of an moa mm -hmm. and so we can test the shift that takes place throughout the process and we can index it so it gets re-indexed exactly the same way every time and the average shift if there is one 
uh, after 5,000 impacts at that recoil rating uh, is uh, we, we don't tolerate more than a 16th of a minute of angle. Mm-hmm. So you're talking about a five, eight inch shot group at a thousand yards, right? which is like, there's, there's not ammo consistent enough to shoot a five, eight inch group, not counting the monkey behind the gun or the atmospheric right. that stuff. Right. So we're well within the noise of the bullet itself, let alone every other factor there. Um, right. So we do a significant amount of recoil testing, but if you're okay with me talking about recoil for a second, this is a, this yeah, we, we were talking about it out on the range earlier and you, you told me something that was pretty eye opening, and uh, yeah, I, w- I would love to get into that. Yeah. So recoil is an interesting phenomenon because what takes place during recoil is, is probably very different than what the, the end user, the shooter is feeling. And we, we talk about recoil and it's funny. The only people that want to shoot a 50 caliber Barrett are those that haven't, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Right. Uh, once you shoot them enough, you're like, Hey, box checked moving yeah. all my life. Yeah. I'll tell you fun. an interesting thing about that is someone says, Hey man, uh, what 50 cal should I get? And I say, come borrow mine. And when you get it out of your system, bring it back. Yeah, bring it and, back. And, and then you're done. And here's 20 rounds. Mm-hmm. Go have fun. <laughs> so, yeah, you're right about that. It's Yeah, they're not an enjoyable gun to shoot. They serve a purpose, right? Yeah. Um, but they're not an enjoyable gun to shoot. But the thing is, is that we shoot it. Why is it not enjoyable? People would say recoil. But mm-hmm. the reason why it's not enjoyable is because of recoil time and concussion, right? Now, I want to talk about the weight of a scope here in a minute. But this directly applies to recoil. So, um Recoil has two primary components. One is G-forces pulled, meaning how fast it's accelerating, but mm-hmm. the other one is time, mm-hmm. right? Uh, not how fast it's accelerating. The G-forces are not how fast it's accelerating. That's where the time comes into play. Um, but G-forces pulled and time, those are the two primary components. And time is the critical factor in what we feel as a shooter, right? And so what's interesting is that, and this is something very few people know, is that a 50 caliber Barrett has about a quarter of the damaging recoil that a nine millimeter Glock does, right? You bolt a scope to a nine millimeter Glock and that, that optic is just going to get shredded. Mm -hmm. So we had to redesign our testing system for the Delta point pro to withstand. And it's way over a nine millimeter. We tested it beyond that. But when I was telling you earlier is that the test that we designed for the Delta point pro literally started tearing our building down. We built a jig, built the test and then it the the dp pro made it through but the vertical concrete stanchions in the basement walls were starting to crack and we had to get the test done get the information we needed and then actually physically repair the building right um but that's where the time comes into play so the the 50 cal has a very very low recoil rating um but it's expended over a longer period of time so we as a human feel all of it right, right. whereas a nine millimeter has this massive spike of about 1200 g's or something but what happens is it happens in such a short period of time we can absorb that re-index and re-engage rapidly and not feel like any damage has been done but the right. damage transfer right the harmonic transfer that takes place to anything bolted to the gun or the weapon system that's where the damage occurs. So um, a lot of people will go, I'm not too worried about any kind of damage. I've got a big muzzle brake or a big suppressor on there. It really mitigates recoil. Well, all of that harmonic transfer takes place during the internal ballistic phase of that bullet movement because right. all that energy transfer takes place before the projectile leaves the muzzle. Well, any muzzle device that you have out there, take like, from my experience, the most efficient muzzle brake on the planet, which is an APA bastard break mm-hmm. right those bastard breaks are psychotically effective right. right well that break i mean i could shoot my 300 wind mag and put like 400 rounds through it straight i don't even feel it on my shoulder because of a, a you know a fat bastard on there right but the the problem is is that break 
acts entirely off of external ballistics. Mm -hmm. The Projo leaves the muzzle, energy follows with it, and then engages the muzzle device where all the damaging harmonic transfer has already taken place. So this is where I wanted to talk a little bit about weight. Um, if your brain works like mine, meaning you're somewhat of a Neanderthal, everything in life that's heavier feels like it's more quality, right? Mm -hmm. and there's that scene that I brought up when I was teaching that class down here in December was uh, that scene from, uh, what movie is that? Snatch, mm -hmm. where the Russian guy's trying to sell him a broken revolver and he's like, the, he tells him the weight symbolizes reliability. If it doesn't work, you can always hit him with it. Well, and then when I got out of the Marine Corps, I became a diesel mechanic. So all my tools were big and heavy and like bigger the better, right? Um, but it's exact opposite with a scope. And the reason why most scopes are heavy is due to an erector system being built out of brass. Okay. And that brass is easy to attain. It's easy to machine, right? It makes everything feel buttery smooth or whatever as you're spinning your power selector ring back and forth. That's all good and well, but brass is heavy. Yep. And there's a couple things that break down with brass over time. One is brass work hardens. Mm -hmm. Right. And so through that harmonic transfer and that shock, it starts to get brittle. But the other thing is the weight inside of the scope. So as that transfer takes place of energy, that erector system literally starts slamming around inside of that scope, just like a shake weight would. Right. And it starts tearing the scope apart from the inside out. Mm -hmm. So like counterintuitively, if you, like I said, if your brain works like mine, a lighter scope is a far more durable scope and will have much more longevity into it based on recoil. Because it's not eating up all that energy. Exactly. There's the just, more mass has to eat up more energy. 100%. Okay. Absolutely. Interesting. Um, Very interesting. Well, man, yeah. that's, uh, that's, that's pretty interesting. Like I told you before we got started, there was um, a thing that I wanted to, to bring up with you about parallax. Yeah. And um, so I have a video out and... I say that is a parallax knob. It's not a focus knob. And you say that's a focus knob. It's not a parallax knob. And I think we're both right. <laughs> the parallax is an interesting conversation. And the reason why it's interesting is I used to, I used to call parallax the long range precision shooters buzzword. Mm -hmm. And, um, now that's, that, that's Coriolis dude. That's Well, that's another one. You were correct. There's about a half dozen that we love to bring up to, yep. to, to make it sound like we actually know what we're talking about. But parallax is, I think one of the biggest reasons that people say I'm missing or, you know what I mean? Oh, my parallax was off or, Oh man, I'm having problems. I got parallax in my scope, parallax, 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 constant. But this was, this was very enlightening whenever you were talking about that, because, you know, I, I kind of come from the same thing. I, if I have the ability, you know, to adjust my parallax, I do. Now, whenever I'm training, like, you know, who we train and everything else, I say, Hey, just turn it till it's in focus and you're going to reduce the parallax where it's not going to matter. And it goes even further than that. Yes. I mean, it goes even further than that, that maybe you've got a lot of parallax in there, but your error mathematically is so small. Yes. And you enlighten me on this and I want you to do the same for these guys. Yeah. And normally I draw this out. So I'll, I'll try to explain it, um, you know, through audio and, and hopefully it'll, it'll make sense. I, I'm happy to throw out like, uh, you know, my, how to get a hold of me on Facebook or Instagram or whatever. If people have questions, please feel free to direct message me. And then I, I'm happy to jump on the phone with you. But, um, Probably shouldn't even put that out to the masses, but um, I'm seriously. I, I do. I give my phone yeah, number out every I'm, time. I'm happy to do it. I mean, people have questions, and I'm more than happy to work with them. Um, but uh, so yeah, so parallax is a discussion that we always have about why we're missing, but the science behind parallax makes parallax way less critical for a missed shot than we actually would like to believe it is. Um, 
where parallax will really cause you to miss is when you're shooting groups at 100 yards, right? right. When your gun is like shooting a minute, a minute and a quarter, and right. you're like, dude, I, I, this this gun should be a laser beam. And then you look and your parallax is set at infinity or on 800, and you bring it back down to 100, and then all of a sudden watch your shot group go down to quarter minute, half minute, whatever it is. You're like, okay, there was a parallax issue yeah. there for sure. Yeah. Um, at distance though, and there's a window um, where parallax really just, you can't blame a miss on parallax. Right. And what I mean by that, and a lot of that's based off the size of the target. Right. Right. Um, well, also size, also the size of the tube of the scope. It can mm-hmm. only be the objective lens. Yeah. It can only be lens. so far off. Right. Right. So the example I gave you guys in class that I drew on the board is if I had my side focus set to be perfectly parallax free and in focus at 150 yards. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason why I use 150 is because if you have a loophole, then I can't attest to other companies. Um, I think night force is 200 yards. I can't remember, but loopholes is 150 yards. Okay. And if you have a scope that doesn't have a side focus on it, right. it is set with collimated to be focused and parallax free at 150 yards. Yeah. The reason why we do 150 is because we found that about 90 some odd like crazy high number, like 98% of hunters will never shoot past 300. Right. And they shoot a lot of times from zero to 300. And so if we set it at 150, they're they're maxed out and optimized for clarity and for being parallax free when it's set uh, fixed at 150. So say your side focus, whether it is um, a scope with the adjustment or not, we're just gonna say that it is set right now at 150. Well, I can have a, a freaking dance party behind my scope and I'm not gonna have a shift in my point of aim versus my point of impact because I'm parallax free at 150, right? But right. then we bump out to 300. Right. And what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna, you know, snort an entire line of stupid and jack my face all the way to the side of the scope to where the scope is completely vignetted out, meaning mm-hmm. blacked out, scope shadows taken over, but I'm looking through a little teeny sliver of light. What I've done now is I've forced myself to look through diagonal through the optical system. And say we have a 50 millimeter objective lens. Right. We'll stick with that because that's very common. Um, also, math is easier for fives and zeros. <laughs> um, so a 50 millimeter objective. Well, I've jacked my face all the way sideways. And so at 300 yards, which is double the distance of 150, right? To do this, if it was parallax free at 200, I'd have to be at 400. So we're at 300, I'm double the distance of where I collimated the scope to be perfectly parallax free. And I've looked as, I've literally induced the maximum amount of parallax I possibly could. Maximum amount of terrible sight picture. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. And I jack my face all the way sideways and what I can possibly be off at 300 yards is half the width of the objective lens. So now I could only like by maxing my parallax out to the extreme, I can only miss my target by 25 millimeters. And if I jacked it's around it, an inch, isn't it? 25.4 is an inch. So yep, right around an inch. inch. So yeah, I, so I hear you on that, man. And that, that was one of the things that really, really stuck with me. Go ahead. Yeah, I'm actually here guys, but uh, <laughs> holy shit. Um, Dave's here. Yeah, I, Dave is. Dave's not here. I don't know, man. Dave's that's. Not here. Oh yeah, no, I'm. I'm just gonna be sitting here for the next hour and listening. I just gonna have to point out so. Because he just blew my mind there. One, I think a lot of us, and and I think I'm guilty of this. I think I've advised people, hey, at a hundred, you can't be that far off. But we're backwards here. What most people think it sounds like. It Correct. sounds like that you know at a hundred, that's where you probably are throwing your shots because of your parallax and all that. But. I'm just going to back up here because we like myth busting and getting those excuses out of the way. So 
you getting out there to you said you're what around 200 yards so about you'd have to go to 400 yards and well, be that's, in it that's an example yeah yeah so you go to 400 say say you were set parallax free at 200 you go to 400 if you have a 50 millimeter objective and you like we, we the example we talked about inducing max yeah. parallax you could only be off 25 millimeters and then add another 200 <laughs> off of that and every 200 yards you add since you have been parallax free at 200 Every 200 yards you add, you're just adding another half width of the objective lens. So by the time you get to, say, 600, the furthest you could be off is two inches or 50 millimeters. So, so you could be sit, you could have set your, because a lot of guys do this, they'll set their parallax in the middle somewhere, 400, yep. 500, 600 yards. So you, you do this, assuming the scope and, you know, nothing's wrong with it. You're not missing, you're not missing a thousand yards. No, if you put your face in the center of the scope and pull the trigger, yeah. If you're, you're if you're even close to having a decent sight picture, yeah, you're good. So, all right, you're good. That excuse is out gone, the window, gentlemen. Gone forever, and, guys. And it, it actually gets worse. I'm going to take you one further, one further down the rabbit hole that we didn't talk about. Uh, I'm going to go back to my cave over here and, <laughs> and learn things. Um, the other thing to think about too is there's something called a hyperfocal distance. Okay, and a hyperfocal distance is the distance that you get to based on the optical system design where parallax literally no longer plays a part at all. And there okay. is no such thing as parallax. Okay. So like on a three to nine, like the old hunting scope that we all, everybody called them a three by nine back yep. in the day. And they, you know, like everybody's heard grandpa talk about a three by nine Leopold. Right? Oh yeah, for sure. And, um, but, but a, on a three to nine uh, in our, at least our three to nine, I can't remember, but the hyperfocal distance is somewhere around 350 yards. Mm -hmm. So beyond 350 with a, loophole like the old school like very x2 three to nine or whatever it is and I, I think it's the vx freedom or whatever it is right now i can't remember um the uh hyperfocal distance is somewhere and I'm, I'm probably not exactly right but it's somewhere around 350 yards so with right. that scope you shoot beyond 350 yards the only thing you're dealing with at this point is a target that could be slightly out of focus right but parallax plays no no part whatsoever right. and the reason for that is you hit a certain distance and this is the reason why on a side focus knob you have the little infinity symbol correct and that is designed to hit infinity once you hit your hyperfocal distance and you're just set it there for uh, image clarity, right. not for parallax, not for parallax. Right? Not for parallax. So what yeah. happens is once you hit that point, all the lights and colors are entering the optical system perfectly linearly in line with the optical system. Once you get closer than the hyperfocal distance, all the lights and colors are entering at different angles, which causes the distortion, right? Right. Or that, that, uh, misrelationship, misaligned relationship between the reticle and the image inside of the scope, which causes parallax. Right. After that distance, everything is perfectly in line. And so therefore everything will end up aligned for you and parallax no longer comes into play. Then it's just a focus knob. Yes. So it's a parallax knob at a hundred essentially for us stupid people it's a parallax knob at 100 yep and you know work it to 300 or so and then after that it's a focus knob. Well, on that three to nine it's three 350 or so right on a different scope would be something different but but roughly that, those kind of distances yeah exactly but i i want to take this in a second i think dave's going to talk here but i want to i want to tie this back into sight picture because this is very important because when most of us think sight picture sight alignment where we learn that is on a pistol with the front sight focus or on if you're old like us with with a2 rear sight you know front sight you learn that i mean that that is critical mm -hmm. right yeah. um but in a scope sight picture is incredibly critical but we don't think about it because we're like i'm in the tube 
You know what I mean? Like good to go as kids or whatever. And that's why it's, I think it's very important to start kids oftentimes on iron sights because they learn that critical sight picture sight alignment and then they can apply it to an optic. What are you going to say, Dave? I, I almost forgot because I'm over here like a kid, like I'm drooling in the corner. Like this is, this is some crazy stuff. Uh, the hyperfocal, and I think I got that right. How, is there a way to know what that, like, how would you know what your hyperfocal point is? You, would, that should be on like, um, if you get on a scope, um, and I'm not sure if it's on our website or not, but um, you could call in and ask, okay. uh, and it might be on like, when you get on somebody's website, get on the spec, like on Leupold's website and get the specs, go to the spec drop down menu under a scope. It might be on there, but I don't, I don't think it is, but. Well, I, I tell you that, and guys, before Mike even started talking, Michael even started talking, I was saying, you know, that this, the information that he had is absolutely critical. Uh, we're getting to that point to where we need to, we need to move on a little bit. Uh, I was going to say though, Michael, if you're going to be around, um, could we trouble you to visit with us again? hundred percent. Okay. Oh, well, yeah. good. I'd like to, I'd like to like to have you back. And again, I think we kind of missed out your, your position at Leopold is, uh, military business development manager. Okay, great. And you were in the Marine Corps? Yes. A sniper? No, not in the Marine Corps. So um, I actually started in the Army mm -hmm. and spent three years in the Army uh, and then on the National Guard side and then switched over to the Marine Corps. Um, did four years in the Corps. I spent two years in a, um, a boat company with an amphibious infantry unit and then switched over and took the, the stay in dock and became uh, a scout in a sniper platoon. Spent two years in a sniper platoon in the Marine Corps. Um, but because of the op tempo of the Fallujah deployments, uh, I didn't get a chance to go to sniper school. So I, I got out, had a break in service of about five years, went back into the army on the national guard side, went through the army sniper program, and then finished my career out teaching sniper school at the Fort Chaffee sniper schoolhouse yeah. uh, in Arkansas for the yeah. national guard. So, uh, I am a Marine. Yes, I am a sniper. Yes. yes. I am not a Marine Corps scout sniper. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. <laughs> so, yeah, so yeah, the, yeah. <laughs> those guys were putting out those guys were putting out some really really top shooters at the national guard school in, at fort chaffee it was just at. yeah it's fantastic i got a lot of friends from there and i, I really think a lot of them and what they were what they were doing I out there i feel like it's the hidden gem of the sniper community it's yeah, kind of like sure. one of those if you know you know things <laughs> and um it was funny when i was working there a lot of guys were coming to us from the active duty side we had some first group guys come through and then uh some from ranger battalion guys come through and it was like what are you guys doing here? And it was, you know, a couple of them were like, well, we couldn't get slots on active duty school. So we came, there were slots open here. Right. And it gets right. us that Bravo four, but there was a lot of guys that were like, ah, uh, we, we wanted to come to the schoolhouse. And yeah. I don't know if it was the fact that, uh, everybody that was an instructor there fought to be an instructor there. So right. there was a lot of pride in what right. we did, but it's, I swear I've heard that from you. And I've heard that from a ton of people that that's like, the hidden freaking gem of the sniper yeah. community because it is a phenomenal schoolhouse. Well, you know, a friend of mine um, that was there, he was he was over in at um, at the sniper school in Fort Benning for the longest time, and then whenever he went to the National Guard school as as an instructor as well, yeah. I mean, it, it was just fantastic. You might know him, Dominic Barnello. Yeah, I know Barnello. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. he was just a uh, really really good guy. I mean, he has he has his his fingers in the beginning of the international sniper comp and all of that. So, yeah. man, it was just. It was just fantastic to see what those guys were producing. Yeah, out of I was school. very proud to be at that schoolhouse. There was yeah. a lot of knowledge there and, and instructors that were very passionate about producing good snipers. Oh, yeah. And it yeah. was cool. A lot of good dudes. Yeah. Well, very cool. Well, listen, since you've agreed to come back, and I know you're not leaving town for a couple of days, yeah. we are definitely going to pin you down one more time. Um, sure. Like I say, I know that 
I know that I, if I just if I just let you go on, we'd, we'd miss the rest of the match. And so, yeah, we're here at we're here at the uh, at the rifles only. We're doing the brawl this weekend. You want to take that one over, David? And um, hang on, my back. Let me let him talk for just a second. How was your first day at the brawl as a as a shooter out here? And then we'll get to David as a range officer. As as a shooter or as a guy here to have a good time? Uh, well, either way, however you want to do it. Um, what I found, and, and you saw me grab Chris and, and ask for some more instruction, um, you know, sniping and shooting a competition are such different worlds, incredibly yep. different worlds. And um, it's funny, I, I get the chance to shoot maybe one competition a year because I'm my travel schedule is so rigid. Um, and man, I just show up and go every single time. I just am like, wow, I have so much to learn. I suck so bad. <laughs> and um, the thing that I found is how slow I am in developing positions right. uh, versus, you know, when I get into a position, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm solid, yeah. you know, but it's, I'm timing out a lot, but right. one thing that you do here is have very, very small targets. Yeah. Right. And uh, I know that you're known for that, right? right? You have a reputation for having small targets. So it's been humbling. It's also been really, really fun because I'm squatted up with uh, some really amazing people that, it's like any competition you go to. If it's a great community, then people just love to help and they love to, you yeah. know what I mean, work with you. And so um, I'm getting my ass handed to me. Yeah. And having a blast, getting my ass kicked. Yeah. And uh, learning a ton. But um, there's stuff I've learned going through just for just day one of this competition that I need to apply to my own training regimen. So, oh, for sure. For yeah. sure. Well, that's the thing. You know, the we I think a lot of times you get some shooters out there, um, they'll get, you know, jerseyed up. And we even had a, a conversation about this in the podcast you know they got this like really need to perform and then whenever that that kind of takes over that the true fact that how lucky are we right to even be here yeah and to play this game yeah. and we get the opportunity to meet so many cool people and shoot guns yeah. you know what i mean yeah, and yeah. and have a great lunch and brisket tomorrow and yeah you know i think people kind of lose sight of that not everybody but uh but it's a like a lot do you're a lot right. do you're right and i feel like every time i got off a of stage today someone was like how'd you do and i was like well i didn't dq and i'm out shooting so <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm like, it's a win yeah you i know? think that was your answer said to me it says hey i'm i'm on the range the sun's out yeah. and i'm shooting guns how, what could go wrong incredibly <laughs> blessed to be here regardless <laughs> yeah of how very I do. good but and, i'm i'm also not sponsored i'm not here you know what i mean i'm right. not here to to do that so it's i i get to show up and just have a blast i bet I you am. could get loophole to give you a scope they, they might loan me a scope they might loan it to you yeah, you have to bring sure. it back <laughs> absolutely <laughs> well also as the loophole representative here at, at the brawl loophole is a sponsor y'all can see our other sponsors of the brawl you know on our on our website as well as the facebook page but uh keep that in mind uh, we'll have michael back with us again uh, before he has to take off and, and go back to work but uh you're a wealth of knowledge my thank friend, you. and uh, I, I cannot thank you enough. We are, we're humbled that you came over to, to visit with us a little bit. Well, I appreciate you having me, and thank you for having me on the podcast. This yeah, absolutely, awesome. man. Absolutely. Yeah. You're always welcome. Always welcome. It. And if something comes up in the scope world that like you feel like people need to know, yeah, call in because we can, with yeah. this new equipment that David got, I, I mean, it's got more knobs and levers than my airplane. <laughs> so, yeah, you'll be able to... You'll be able to get in and, and uh, call remote, in and do a remote, remote podcast. Absolutely. I'd love it. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Yeah. Cool. David, did you have anything else that you needed to bring up today? I have so many questions. <laughs> like, this is, uh, I don't know if one podcast, one more is going to be enough. Like, I thought I knew, we're, we're talking about knowing some shit, and, uh, and I thought I knew some things about optics. And Oh, he hasn't even... I, touched the tip of the iceberg yet. I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm just an, I'm just a dummy that pulls a trigger because <laughs> yeah. this is... Uh, 
I've already right, learned I mean, stuff right now. Same way, awesome. like I said in the beginning, you know, I, I felt like I had a really good, solid understanding of optic. And, and I'm not going to say that I don't. I mean, uh, but I'm like the guy that, you know, I, I know how uh, when I turn on my TV, I can change channels and I can turn up the volume. But I got no idea how it works, you know, and I think that's where that's where having somebody like Michael here who can, you know, explain that to us. And believe me, I've I've listened to his his lecture and he can go on and on uh, and no, all I'm of it make a is point fascinating. To be here for the next one that he's yeah, whenever he's sure. doing it. Uh, but yeah, well, he's offered to come down again and do it. So, <laughs> oh man, because uh, I mean, I think I I swear I've probably told people uh, I'm probably guilty. I know I've told people eh, it's a hundred yard. That's not what's throwing your group up. It's some parallax. Yeah, and apparently I I don't. I don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> all right. All right, guys. Thanks for listening out there. We got the brawl going this week. Um, we'll have the results of that uh, up on, on a, either Saturday night or Sunday. Y'all be able to pick that up. You want to find my name? Look at the bottom of the list. <laughs> I think you're doing better than that. I checked it. You're not You're not at the bottom of the list. <laughs> You'd be well, surprised. Like uh, what people think is, I mean, I was on the RO side because we had, you know, all, uh, the storm obviously uh, knocked out some stuff. So I went ahead. I was going to shoot, but I'm always happy to RO. Yeah. And I appreciate you coming down to do that, David. It, it really helped us out. We, we lost, uh, we lost over 40 participants in this match. And I don't really like that because I know it's not because they couldn't come. It's because they're repairing their houses, you know, that had busted pipes and maybe still don't have power. Uh, our main range officers like Lindy Sisk is not here because of that reason. And uh, a shout out to those guys who aren't here. Uh, we wish you were here. We will see you next year at the brawl. And uh, we're going to get with, with Michael one more time, at least once more time, or maybe two more times before he has to take off. But thank you all for listening. Catch us again. We'll see you next week. <laughs>